0: At all. you'll recognise it's school holiday so it's my turn again seems to come around oh, look. Here. I, I probably should leave now because I've got the round of applause and it may get worse from here I'm going to start just a moment with a, uh, a film clip now some of the folks here who are perhaps a little grey headed will know this film as one of the finest films ever made made in 1941 uh, stars. I could do it like a trivia thing here and you could guess what it is. But it's 1941, starring Walter Pidgeon and Maureen O'Hara, set in a Welsh mining town. Anyone would like to hazard a guess, apart from David already knows. How green was my value, what a champion. Well, we're going to show a scene here to just give us a little, a little bit of encouragement so that when we come to excommunicate a person, we'll know exactly how to do it. <laughs> here we go. in your places is to be a meeting of the deacons Michael Lewis step forward Found you out. And now you must pay the price of all women like you. You have brought a child into the world against the commandment. Prayer is wasted on your sort. You should be cast out into the utter darkness till you have learned your lesson. Michael and Lewis, do you admit your sin? Oh, Your punishment. Stop it! Oh, stop it! Leave her alone, you hypocrite! Leave her now, Mr. Moore. You! Sit down! Anhar- <laughs> How could you stand there and watch them? Cruel old men, groaning and nodding to hurt her more. That is not the word of God. Go thou and sin no more, Jesus said. i and that's why we don't have deacons in this church. (laughs) We've heard the passage uh, read that we're looking at this morning, but uh, as we go to look at it more uh, carefully, let's pray. Father, we just uh, ask that you might guide us through this passage. We know there's some uh, difficult issues in it, and we just ask you would uh, speak to our hearts and minds this morning as we seek to learn from it. We do this in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. So the issue being kind of addressed this morning. Oh, yes, for about that thing? Yes, the issue being addressed this morning by Paul in this particular passage is, is really about how a church ought to address the issue of the presence of an unrepentant, overtly sinful member of its congregation. Well, one way to do it is follow the, uh, the guidelines of the clip I just showed call someone out, shame them, kick them out of the church. Another move might be the practice uh, in the recent past of the Roman Catholic Church, which has been revealed by the Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse. When you find out who the perpetrator of a particular sinful behaviour is, you simply move them to another parish and hide it all and uh, declare that the victim is, in fact, the guilty party. But maybe there's another way. Maybe there's actually a a godly way. Maybe there's a, a Christian way. And I think this is the way that Paul commends uh, to the church at Corinth. And we'll be, we'll be aware, of course, at least I suppose, suppose we might be aware, that the church at Corinth was uh, not always a savoury place, and he's had to, uh, Paul had to write a letter to them uh, earlier to draw out and to reveal some of the concerns that he had for that church and how it was behaving. And uh, some of that will come into what we look at this morning. So my plan is to look at this subject under three broad headings based on this passage. The first is the context of the specific problem that is being dealt with. Remember, it is a specific problem in this particular church, but it does have general principles that underpin it. The Christian way of dealing with that problem. And then the third one, which seems perhaps a little left field, but it's very much part of the passage, is the designs of Satan. What is the devil trying to do in these kinds of situations? So in order to look at it first of all, we're going to need to get a bit of context. So that's the first point, the context of the specific problem. We need to actually go back to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And Paul's words here are quite blunt. Let's have a quick read of the passage. It says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Now I assume that means his stepmother. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn that him who has done this be removed from among you? For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So reading the passage, you kind of get the impression that the church perhaps hadn't been treating this particular matter very seriously at all. Maybe they've been tolerating this kind of behaviour, but Paul says that they actually should be grieved over what has occurred. They should be grieved that one of their number was actually behaving in such a way, and bringing dishonour not only to the church but to God himself. Evidently, they weren't. So he needed to step in and tell them what to do. He told them they needed to confront the matter and they needed to confront the person promptly and firmly. So when they were to next meet as a body of believers... And note that Paul says, this is your responsibility, you as church. It's not an individual's responsibility. It's not Paul's responsibility. It's the church's responsibility. They were to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Well, what on earth does that mean? Well, guess what? I'm not going to go into that today because it's not in the passage I'm looking at. It's pretty clever, eh? But... We can make a, a, we all, again, we probably may well be aware if we've come across this before and checked out a few commentaries that there's a variety of understandings of this. Um, However, the thing we need to take away at the moment is that the person involved is to be kicked out, they'd be excommunicated from the church, put out of fellowship. Verse 13 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says, uh, God judges those who are outside the church. But for you guys, inside, purge the evil person from among you. So he's, you know, Paul's makes that point. This person is to be removed from fellowship in the church. We would call it excommunication, perhaps. But note something much more important even than that. That the ultimate purpose of this very decisive and fairly blunt action is mentioned in verse 5. It says, so that, this, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So here's the purpose, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, with that just sort of in our, in our minds, with that as a bit of background, we can kind of move on to see what the, um, what's happening from this point. So now what? The guy's been kicked out. What happens next? And it's clear from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, right, this is the passage we're looking at today, that the church has followed Paul's instructions. The person's been removed. What do you do now? They've got the offender away from there. He's out of fellowship. He's been excommunicated. What is the next step? So point two, what's the Christian way of dealing with this person, this situation? We look at verse five of chapter two of two Corinthians. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. So he's addressing the church here. Paul begins to answer the now what question by reminding the uh, Corinthian Christians uh, of how the situation should really be understood. The sinful behaviour of this person, this immoral man, should be a cause of some measure of pain to the Corinthians. It isn't necessarily a cause of pain to Paul. He's had to step in. It's been a bit of a bother to him. But the pain, perhaps, that has come to the Corinthians isn't necessarily even the pain uh, of the sinful behaviour itself but rather the pain that comes with the rebuke that Paul had to give them. So they've experienced some measure of pain because Paul's had to tell them off. Look, guys, you need to get your act right. You need to do the right thing. There are things that are happening that you can't tolerate, you need to do something about that. There's been some pain. No doubt also there there would be pain associated with the fact that someone has sinned in their midst, uh, and they've come to realise that. So once they realise the gravity of the situation, they acted decisively. No doubt, there's some measure of pain in the realisation and uh, also in the, in the reality of seeing a brother out of fellowship uh, and that brother having a, uh, a future that's quite uncertain. And so acknowledging the painful nature of the whole situation, Paul, Paul then goes on to tell them what they should do next. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. This particular uh, couple of verses, or these particular verses, seem to suggest that the man has actually now turned from his sin, that he's actually become repentant. So the action that they've taken has actually had an effect. He's actually changed his ways. The punishment itself has done the work for which it's intended. You know, And he says, for such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. So note the words, for such a one. It probably suggests that it may not have turned out that way. This particular one has acted in an appropriate manner. Has actually responded to the kind of thing that has been done. Has responded to church discipline, so to speak. And so they then have a responsibility. This man has not continued in this sin. It appears that this man has changed, that this man has repented. So what next? What in the case of a person who's been excluded or has been put under some sort of discipline within the context of church, what do you do next if the person then turns around? They are to turn from their punishment, forgive and comfort to reaffirm their love for him. Now, I know we all know that forgiveness is the right thing. It's the thing the Bible teaches us, that we ought, as Christians, to forgive. But that doesn't make it easy. Forgiveness might be right, but it's not necessarily the easy thing to do, particularly if we're the wronged party. But the reality is that forgiveness is fundamental to the Gospel. Jesus gave his life on a cruel cross that we might know God's forgiveness. You know, He bore our penalty in our stead that we might receive forgiveness. He took the punishment. Remember, as Jesus died, he said to his executioners, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Now, one of the uh, wonderful examples that Jesus gives, and there are many, many examples in the gospel of, uh, Gospels of Jesus forgiving. But one of the great examples, of course, is the example of his forgiveness of Peter. Because in the example of forgiveness of Peter, there's not only forgiveness, there is also restoration. You remember the situation? Peter had denied Jesus three times before the cock crowed. He had even denied it with oaths. It sounds like he was swearing as well. So he was fairly firm in his denial. So he had denied the the Christ that he claimed to want to follow, even to death. After Jesus' resurrection... You remember Peter was out um, out fishing and and Jesus came and Peter jumped out of the boat and ran to him. But Jesus then took him aside and he gave Peter the opportunity to declare his love for him. He said, Peter, do you love me? He said it three times. And each time Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. He gave Peter the opportunity three times to say that he loves him. How many times have Peter denied him? Three times. Jesus was bringing him back. Jesus was restoring him to fellowship. Not only that, after each declaration of love, Jesus commissioned Peter to further ministry. He said, not only do you love me, he said, well, Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, tend my sheep. Peter, feed my lambs. He commissioned Peter to ministry. So not only was Peter drawn back into fellowship with Jesus, the one whom he had wronged, but not only was the restoration just personal, it was so complete that Jesus, uh, Peter was commissioned to go and serve. And we all know, that, in fact, that's what happened. So Jesus demonstrated compassion, forgiveness. He restored Peter to fellowship with him and commissioned him for ministry. And Peter, as we know, went on to be Jesus' witness. He was instrumental in the establishment of the church. He preached that sermon at Pentecost where 3,000 people were converted. Uh, He proclaimed the gospel throughout the course of the remainder of his life and he ultimately died the death of a martyr in Rome. Why all that? Because he had been forgiven. Because he had been restored. So the New Testament teaches over and over again that forgiving is simply part of the normal Christian life, both as individual Christians but also as whole churches. Let me just give you a few examples of uh, passages from Scripture, just just four uh, examples of passages of Scripture that uh, teach us to forgive. In Matthew chapter 6, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your Father in heaven will forgive you also. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Mark 11. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Or Matthew 18. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And other versions say, says 70 times seven. Or Ephesians 4. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other just as Christ, uh, just as in Christ God forgave you. And then a fifth one in uh, Colossians chapter 3. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy, dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. See, forgiven people forgive people. Forgiven people forgive people. One extraordinary example of that kind of forgiveness, though in a sense it's not uh, completely applicable here because it's actually about forgiving someone who's wronged who's not part of the church. Um, but one incredible example of that, which is a real challenge to us, uh, occurred just a few years ago, in fact 10 years ago this year, uh, in Lancaster County in Pennsylvania, where a fellow by the name of Charles Roberts entered a, um, an Amish school and he kicked out the teacher and all the boys and kept ten little girls. And then uh, the police came, surrounded the place, and then he shot each of the ten girls, killing five of them and maiming the other five, some of whom um, are still seriously disabled today. I'll read a brief extract from uh, a report of that particular event and see how the Amish folk responded to that. And says this Following the tragic Amish school shooting of 10 young schoolgirls in a one room Amish school in October 2006, reporters from throughout the world invaded Lancaster County um, to counter, uh, cover the story. However, in the hours and days following the shooting, a different and unexpected story developed. In the midst of their grief over this shocking loss, the Amish community didn't cast blame. They didn't point fingers, they didn't hold a press conference with attorneys at their sides. Instead, they reached out with grace and compassion toward the killer's family. The afternoon of the shooting, an Amish grandfather of one of the girls who was killed expressed forgiveness toward the killer, Charles Roberts. That same day, Amish neighbours visited the Roberts family to comfort them in their sorrow and pain. Later that week, the Roberts family was invited to the funeral of one of the Amish girls who had been killed, and Amish mourner's. Uh, outnumber the non-Amish at Charles Roberts' funeral. It's ironic that the killer was tormented for nine years by the premature death of his young daughter. He never forgave God for her death, yet after he cold-bloodedly shot ten innocent Amish schoolgirls, the Amish almost immediately forgave him and showed compassion towards his family. In a world at war in a society that often points fingers and blames others, this reaction was unheard of. Many reporters and interested followers of the story ask, how could they forgive such a terrible, unprovoked act of violence against innocent lives? The Amish culture closely follows the teachings of Jesus, who taught his followers to forgive one another, to place the needs of others before themselves, and to rest in the knowledge that God is still in control and bring good out of any situation. Love and compassion toward others is to be their life's theme. Vengeance and revenge is to be left to God. I think those last couple of sentences are really quite marvellous. Love and compassion toward others is to be our life's theme. We can leave vengeance and revenge to God. That's his business, not ours. So the the Christians there at Corinth were called upon to forgive, to bring comfort, to reaffirm love. In other words, to restore this man to fellowship with them, to offer hope and encouragement. What about the third point, then? The, the designs of Satan seems a bit offbeat or offline off with what we're talking about, but it's very important. In verse 11, it says, "...so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant, ignorant of his designs." Now, think of this passage there, is at least inferred, if not outrightly stated, three ways in which Satan attempts to outwit God's people. And the first is unforgiveness. If the church itself hadn't responded appropriately to this man, they would have been sinning. They would have been caught up in the wiles of the devil. The second <coughs> pardon me. The second is uh, disunity. Uh, in verses 9 and 10 of the passage we're looking at, it says, For this is why I wrote... That I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, I have forgiven if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. It's likely that Paul had some particular things in mind. It may be that the Corinthian Christians didn't do exactly what he was thinking, but he said, Look, you've gone this far, you've done well. I'll go along with that. What you have done is good. What you, the person you have forgiven, I will forgive. It's a bit like you know, when Jesus said to Peter, What you bind on earth, I'll bind, and what you loosen on earth, I'll loose, and so on. It's that kind of idea. So, Peter, for the sake of Christian unity, says, These things, you know, you've gone this far, I'll go with you. Let's establish unity. Let's not let's let the small things, the things that may in fact divide, become preeminent and destroy us as a fellowship. So, disunity is a possibility. Um, one, of the, one of the designs of Satan to destroy the unity of the church. Sometimes we just got to, um, I, I guess, bring to mind that which is important and that which is not. And just let the not go. Just leave it. And um, stand firm on that which is really, really genuinely significant. That which is consistent with the gospel. That which is consistent with the teaching of scripture. That which brings honour to God. That which shows love amongst one, ourselves. You know, set ourselves aside for a bit. Think of others. And the Bible promotes that idea of being humble and considering the needs of others uh, before ourselves constantly. Let us avoid disunity because it is a ploy, a design of the devil to destroy the work of the gospel. And the third thing I want to go into this one in a little bit more detail, the notion of despair. Verse 7, it says, So you would rather... Turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Now, let me offer first a disclaimer in the things that we're going to comment on, because I'm going to suggest that despair in this context and despair as I'm thinking of it here may well be sinful. So, this, I just want to put a disclaimer this is, we're not talking about clinical depression, right? we're not talking about an illness quite a different thing. It's like saying, if we're talking about depression, it's like saying, oh, cancer is evil. Uh, cancer is something that you must have got because you sinned. It's not that at all. we thing is something quite different here. We're thinking about the consequences of excessive sorrow. We know what they can be. You know, If a person feels really let down by the church, they may turn to act in ways that we might consider a bit irrational, but it's certainly real for them. So some people will turn away and do things like, say, oh, if I'm not good enough for them, I might as well just do whatever I like. Just indulge themselves in sinful behaviour, or they may simply turn away altogether, and whatever faith they had is lost, uh, and they may never touch the doors of a church again. There are all sorts of things that can happen. Um, a, a person who has a bit of an insight into this, I think, which I find uh, quite interesting, is of course the uh, wonderful C.S. Lewis. Um, I'm going to uh, read a passage uh, from uh, the Screw Tape Letters in just a moment. There are other examples, too, we find in the Bible. I think if we think about the way uh, Peter welco- uh, sorry, Jesus welcomed Peter back into the fold after he had denied Christ, and we compare that with the way Judas Iscariot acted after he, too, had denied Christ, that they are chalk and cheese. What's Peter do? Hops out of the boat and runs to Jesus. Jesus then welcomes him into the fold. What's, what's uh, Judas Iscariot do? He sinks into despair. He thinks he is unforgivable. He can do no good. And so he kills himself. Uh, His despair led to a really drastic response. We read about this kind of thing too regularly in the press, in the media. Uh, We hear often reports of those uh, unfortunate folk who are trapped on places like uh, Manus Island and Nauru who sink into despair. Why? Because they have no hope. There's no way they can get off that place. There's no way they can move to something else. They're there in a kind of a limbo land uh, with no direction, no hope, for their future. What happens? Despair. But there's a way of thinking about this Christianly, and I think um, C.S. Lewis has a bit of a handle on it. Now, just for those who are unfamiliar, has anyone heard of the Screw Tape Letters, by the way? Oh, quite a large number. That's good. I won't go into much detail. But just so you know, it's a, it's a short book. Yeah, I think I would recommend it to you highly. well worth a read. You can actually download it as a PDF on... Um, <laughs> online if you so desire, or you can buy a copy. Um, Screwtape is a senior demon, and his um, task is to instruct a junior demon, apprentice, by the name of Wormwood, who's also his nephew, in the ways of beguiling humanity to sin, to the ways of his master, the devil. And so this is a little extract from chapter, or letter 29, and in it What Screwtape does is he's... World War II has begun and all the rest of it. And uh, Screwtape is advising Wormwood as to how one might use the war uh, to try to drag people into the vices as opposed to the virtues. Because he says, look, war has this great potential to elicit virtue. People can be courageous in war. People can sacrifice themselves for others in war. But war has a great potential also to bring out vices... Vices such as cruelty and hatred and cowardice. And so here he goes and talks about another vice, and he calls it despair. So remember, this is written from um, the perspective of a demon. And so the enemy is, in fact, God. Uh, and so just keep that in mind as we read it through. It says, "'Is therefore possible to lose as much as we gain by making your man a coward? "'He may learn too much about himself.'" There is, of course, always the chance not of chloroforming the shame, but of aggravating it and producing despair. This would be a great triumph. It would show that he showed that um, sorry, it would show that he had believed in and accepted the enemy's forgiveness of his other sins only because he himself did not fully feel their sinfulness. That in respect of the one vice which he really understands in its full depth of dishonour, he cannot seek nor credit the mercy. The mercy being God, of course. But I fear you have already let him get too far into the enemy's school and he knows that despair is a greater sin than any of the sins which provoke it. So what do we make of that? What makes despair in the context in which Lewis is is using the idea so bad? Uh, I read a, a chap who commented on this. He says this. When we seek into the depths of despair in this context, this type of despair... We're really saying that we are too far gone for God's grace to reach us. We're saying we believe that our sin is so great that God cannot forgive us. The darkness of despair tells us a lie. It tells us that we are unforgivable. It tells us that our sin, our will, our dark hearts are stronger than that of the Father. We declare his promises are not trustworthy and his power has limitations. Despair is a great sin because in it we declare that God is not God. Our enemy wants us to despair. He wants us to become focused on our own sin, on our own failures, so much so that we lose sight of God's grace and forgiveness. And I guess at least at some level, Paul has this concern. Don't abandon this person, because they might sink into that kind of despair, where they think they are beyond forgiveness, where their sin is the whole focal point, where they can't escape it, where God's not enough, the church won't forgive... Maybe God doesn't think of either. We certainly do not want to be, nor does anyone in the Church of God surely want to be the person or the group that does that to another. That actually drives a person into despair. See, as Christians, we need to imitate Christ in the way we relate to others. We never should we be a people who drives another person to excessive sorrow because of our lack of forgiveness or our failure to comfort. The word comfort there means to strengthen and to encourage. So let me sum up. So what's this is passage really on about? The passage really speaks of what it is that a church, a Christian community, ought to be like. It speaks about what it is that's distinctive and characteristic of us as believers. See, we're a community that's come together because we have one thing in common, We're sinners. We're sinners who have been forgiven because of the sacrificial work of Christ on the cross. We are, in fact, in a community of the forgiven. And we know we are forgiven. We've experienced it firsthand. We know that we are never beyond the grace of God. We know that in Christ there is now no condemnation. We know that in Christ there is hope, the certain hope that we will not always be as we are right now, that there is a glory that awaits us. And if this is so for us individually, if this is so for us as a group, as a community, we need to show it in the way we treat others. When one among us falls, we need to be there to pick them up. We are working with God in the restoration business. That's part of our job. And we do this because that is what Christ has done for us. We do this because, this is the, uh, because the way of love and compassion is the way of Christ. And this is the way we are to imitate this is the way, then, that we honour God, the God who has saved us and overcome the desires of the devil. Perhaps we can do a bit of homework this week, maybe even today. And here it is. You can report on it any time you like, hand your paper in by email or something if you so desire. Your homework is this. Maybe we could take one of the words in our church mission summary, no, grow, so, and sow encouragement into someone 's life this week. Perhaps you can commit to that. sow encouragement into someone 's life this week let 's pray. Father, we thank you that we know forgiveness. We thank you that you have granted that to us at the great cost of the death of Jesus upon a cross. Father, help us to live in the light of that. Help us to live in a way that imitates the Christ who saved us, the Christ who forgave us, that we might honour God. Well, where there are situations, no matter how difficult, help us to work through what needs to be done, that we as a group will know what it is to forgive because we have been forgiven, that we will practise forgiveness, that we will practise comforting, and that we'll reaffirm our love. This we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.